Tell me something about yourself. Anything? Well, try to make it interesting. I've got a long day ahead of me. Tikshaw. I have on a corsa about freckles. A sexual corsa. I find freckles eternal. Freckled skin, it's like it's clothed and not clothed. There's no freckle pornography. Women get famous for breasts and legs, but not for freckles. The Anne of Green Gables. I regard Anne of Green Gables as an erotic classic. Mm. Hello and welcome to the Super 70 Podcast, episode 31, code 46. GM DVD. Runtime is one hour and 33 minutes. Issued in 2004. If you press play on your DVD now, this podcast should sync with the rest of the film. R for a scene of sexuality, including brief graphic nudity, which we will be discussing later. And the UA logo. So this is how this one is going to work. It's going to be a little bit different in that I just finished a podcast with Mike White of the Projection Booth with Jedediah Ayers coming on. I highly recommend that you listen to that after you listen to this. You might even find it more, I don't know, coherent or something. It is episode 580. Mike really pumps them out. So what we have in the opening credit sequence is uh, lots of boxes. These, these boxes are not just something that someone came up with on the fly. Everything is kind of boxed in. And then you get the definition of code 46, which if you're not watching... Article 1, any human being who shares the same nuclear gene set as another human being is deemed to be genetically identical. The relations of one are the relations of all. Due to IVF, DI embryo splitting and cloning techniques, it is necessary to prevent any duplication. All prospective parents should be genetically screened before conception if they have 100%, 50%, or 25% genetic identity they're not allowed to effectively have sex. If the pregnancy is unplanned, the fetus must be screened. Any pregnancy that has 150 or 25 must be aborted. If the parents are ignorant of their genetic relationship, then medical intervention is authorized to prevent any further breach of code 46. If the parents knew that they were genetically related prior to conception, it is a criminal breach of code 46. So we are immediately tossed into a future in which we are boxed in. We have inside and outside, and the title sequence mimics that. And you've got the boxes inside the title, Code 46. You've got these rectangular lines, these houses that are boxy. You've got all kinds of rectangles going on. 
all throughout the film. And you see a desert, but when Tim Robbins lands, he is somehow in what we find to be Shanghai. Now, I happen to know that this is Hong Kong Lantau Airport because I've been there. But this exterior shot is not. This is in the Emirates. And Winterbottom is contrasting this. There's no desert outside of Shanghai. But he's world building here. And sometimes the world building goes awry. And we'll discuss that too. This is a, a brilliant scene there with downtown Shanghai just above this toll booth plaza. This toll booth plaza is is used to create a border. Winterbottom loves borders. These Sherbert fountains, I'm not exactly sure what they are. They could have been anything. They could have been widgets. And here we know or we find out about covers. Covers and papels are almost synonymous, almost one and the same. In this framework, Mike actually said it best. He said these are basically letters of transit is what they are. So going back to Casablanca, 1941, the, the letters of transit, I'm sorry, 1942, the letters of transit allow you to escape. They allow you to go from one place to another. And that's what cover means. So Tim Robbins has cover. And this cover is, is given to you in the form of a papel. And he is going to the papel factory to find something out. Now, this is the uh, the hotel. So you've got these spaces, the huge lobby, the huge hotel, the huge hotel room. He is landing during the day, but remember to the future, what we find out by insinuation is that the sun is actually harmful to you, so pretty much everybody works at night. So he... He left during the night in Seattle, and he arrived in Shanghai during the day, 13 hours later. This is 2003. Um, there's no meta yet putting out virtual reality headsets. So that was, that was looking pretty forward by about 10 or 15 years. Now, Maria Gonzalez wakes up here, played by Samantha Morton. And everyone you see here, remember that it's it might as well be daytime because the, the world is now operating off our natural inclination to work during the day because the sun is dangerous. So everybody works at night. So transit is at night. Everybody's on the subways at night. Everybody's in the market at night. And she is conveying this countdown. That subway looks very, very close to the Hong Kong subway. I'm, in fact, I'm, I'm practically sure that that's it. 
Shanghai didn't have a subway when I was there. It was too long ago. But these dreams keep coming to her every year. And it's like a countdown, she says, for 18 years. Now, she looks like she's in her mid-20s. She thinks that each station, she she gets closer and closer to her goal. So she's one station away from her goal. So she doesn't want to go to sleep. She doesn't want to meet her fate because that's what she thinks is happening. And, of course, she's correct. It's a very weird way to introduce the idea that what is happening is outside of her control. So there is a short... Bit in the film that introduces the idea of there is something supernatural going on that is drawing them to each other. Now we can look at that as something that is purely supernatural, or we can look at that as something genetic is going on that is drawing them to each other regarding Code 46. And of course, Code 46 is the two genetic lines, 23 and 23, is 46. And I first saw Code 46 back when I was a poor school teacher. And near my house, AMC had opened a 30-screen theater And uh, because I was not too fresh with the cash at such a young age, what I would do is I would take the Houston Chronicle out and cut out the showings for the AMC 30. And I would highlight or circle the movies that I wanted to see. And I would go buy a ticket for the opening film at 1030 or 1130. And then I would basically just sit in the AMC 30 all day. So I would just go from screen to screen. Whenever one movie was done, I would immediately go into the next film. I might have to wait 20 minutes or half an hour. And the unbelievable thing is I never got caught. And that is uh, pretty outstanding. I don't know who cares today, but they definitely cared back then. So I call I saw Code 46 one of those Sundays back in 2004. Code 46 was released in the UK in 2003. It is a UK film. MGM got the distribution rights for the United States. MGM UA released it in the States about a year later and that's when I I caught it and saw it. I was the only person in the theater. I knew that it was going to be gone in a week. I had no idea what it was. I probably didn't even circle it when it was on the sheet. I probably more than likely saw Tim Robbins on the poster and thought, I'll give that a shot because I like the player in Bull Durham. And he had a remarkable run in the 90s, of course, the Shawshank Redemption. But there was also this other bull, which was, of course, every time he and Susan Sarandon got onto a show together, they would have to have this obligatory five or ten minute uh, complaining session about how the good people of the of the America didn't give a shit about how disadvantaged people are in the country or out of the country. And you, 
you were just like Jesus Christ. Can you just hand out the fucking award and go home? I really don't feel like being preached to. That's not why I tuned in on a Sunday night at eight o'clock or whatever time it was. So it took a lot for me to get into that theater, particularly since at the time I was a little bit on right of center. Now, here the Anne of Green Gables in the interview, he's interviewing these people to find out, you know, which one is taking the cover, which one is, is stealing the papel so that they can sell the illegally in the black market for cover. He doesn't know Anne of Green Gables. He's reading her mind because he's injected with this empathy virus. And it's not empathy like I empathize with someone. It's empathy like he's empathic. He has empathic abilities to understand and feel the other person. So he gets he gets only eroticism off the first person. He only gets um, a blank out of the second person. And in the third person, he gets something judgmental. And they're all wearing these aprons to mark them as someone who deals with the papel. So every time you see the apron... You'll know that it's the papel. Hers, for some reason, is just off. It just looks like it does not fit, or they just threw it on, or she doesn't really want to wear I don't know what's going on with the apron, but it, it definitely marks her in this interview as different than the other three. One of these things is not like the other. So Maria does this very strange thing where she puts her hands behind her head, and then she starts interlocking her fingers, and it's like she's making some sort of horn out of the top of her head, almost like a unicorn. And this might be a callback to Blade Runner, which this is a future noir. Uh, William Geld, played by Tim Robbins, he is our investigator. He's the guy who's on the case. He's going to crack it. He's going to find uh, his criminal, right? And it's like she's making herself out as someone special, even in this interview. And he's, for some reason, taken with her. He doesn't particularly understand why. Here's the first fingerprint that we see. And we're going to see more finger stuff later. But as he continues his investigation, he's more and more reluctant to turn her in, and we're not exactly sure why. Now, her boss, he's nailed it. He thinks. He thinks it's her. But Geld says, no, it's not her. It's the other guy. And when he does that, he starts getting a headache. And it's because he's going against exactly what he knows. So Geld is done and Geld is gone. And he does not expect to be coming back. She shakes off this feeling that she's just escaped something. And he is very clearly shadowing her to some sort of future. This is the Boond. This is the neighborhood that's directly opposite of downtown Shanghai. This was an area that was built up by Europeans 
uh, particularly the Germans, threw a lot of money in this when Shanghai was divided into a whole bunch of European concessions that the, when the Europeans ran China for, I don't know, I guess 75 years or so, almost 100 years. And the boon to this day still has that sort of European, looks like Frankfurt, looks like Dusseldorf, uh, or a Salzburg type of front to it, kind of like Paris in the 1700s type of look. It looks very, very European. It's very strange to look at it, of course, and it's covered with Chinese characters. And on the subway, Winterbottom is being very... Very cheeky, and he's putting Europeans, Asians, Latins, all in the same shot, all in the same subway, and he's parceling them out so that you see this mix of everybody and everything that's going on. I personally don't think that Shanghai is going to be that diverse. I think it's going to be Asia for Asians. But I see what it's getting at. Like, America is becoming more diverse. The UK is becoming more diverse. Europe itself is struggling and buckling under the pressure of becoming more diverse. We're having a radical reactionary push towards that diversity in the United States. I don't think there's, you're going to have that in, in China. I don't think the Chinese will allow too much diversity. The Han will always rule. But here we're already thrown to dinner. This is the obligatory dinner that every. Everyone in the mating slash dating process has to go through. And these papels made by this corporation passed on to the government. They're made by the Sphinx Corporation. And the Sphinx Corporation sounds like it's kind of privatized international travel. And this reminds me a lot about the Alien films in which you have the Weyland-Yutani Corporation controlling pretty much everything. Now, she says very distinctively, you know, you should come with me. And you can see him struggling with whether or not he should go. And she says specifically, I want to corrupt you. And this is one of those moments in the film. And she's basically saying, you know, the butterfly effect. effect this is, this is going to change you. Now, considering that she is counting down her stations, this is kind of amazing that she's willing to, you know, on this night of all nights... Does she really want to tempt fate in this way? And he should have passed. And she should have passed. But they don't because they have this thing that's tying them together, a chemistry. What we find out later is this chemistry is entirely false. This chemistry is slash genetic and this chemistry is slash empathetic. Now, Winterbottom went from a really big space to a really tiny space. And he'll do that throughout the film. He'll go to a really big space and a really tiny space. Like her apartment and the clinic. And then he'll open it back up. And 
Now, I haven't studied his other films to see whether or not he's done this. But if you ever get a chance, 1997, Welcome to Sarajevo. 1999, Wonderland. 1999, also, With or Without You. In 2000, The Claim. 2002, 24-hour party, people. Do not miss that one. That is a great film. Much better than Code 46, I might add. 2002, In This World. 2003, Code 46. 2004, Nine Songs. Skip this shit out of that. Pass nine songs up. It's not worth your time. 2005, Tristan Shandy. Another one was Steve Coogan. Now, this banter back and forth, she actually says, you know, I thought you had this natural intuitiveness. Well, he does have a natural intuitiveness. It's the virus. But he doesn't offer up that information quite just yet. This is Mick Jones singing, should I stay or should I go? And he is very, very clearly echoing in his own very famous song what is going through Geld's mind. Should I stay or should I go? He should go. He knows that he should go. And what you see is these very bizarre close-ups of Maria from Geld's point of view. If I go, there will be trouble. Well, it's kind of opposite of that. And here's one of the things about the Sphinx that, that they say, you know, the Sphinx knows all. And this guy's saying, Damien, he's saying, well, I've always wanted to study these certain type of bats in India, and I've always wanted to go, and nobody can give me cover to go. And now I get to go because of you. Thank you for helping me so much. We find out later that Damien is going to die because he's bitten by a bat. And he's allergic to the specific type of bat. And that's why the Sphinx Corporation did not let him go look at this specific type of bat. Well, the loophole here is, the one thing that does not make sense is, why didn't the Sphinx Corporation just tell this guy, look, we can't give you cover to go see this bat because it will kill you. That's not apparently how this world works. How it works is they just say no, and then you have to wonder the rest of your life and then harbor resentment against them. Why is it like this? I understand why they let me go. Here's the really weird POV shot from Geld's point of view. And she's asking him basically, like, are you hoping for a reward? Like, for not sending me to jail, are you hoping to sleep with me? And, of course... That's exactly what's going on. Somebody once wrote in one of these books I read on Winterbottom, they said the 20th century was the Freudian century and the 21st century is the genetic century. That might be the case. There's lots of weird stuff going on with genetics now. And I had read in a book about the lead singer of the Gits. And you'll have to forgive me that I forgot her name. Apparently she was a very talented young lady. 
And she was, uh, after a performance in Seattle, she was walking home and she was brutally raped and murdered. And nobody had any idea or clue who had done it. And 20 years later, there was another guy who was just like any other criminal was convicted of physical assault and they took his DNA to process him into jail. And when they put his DNA in the database, I think this is about 2002, they found out that his DNA matched the DNA that was left inside this poor woman back in Seattle. Based on that evidence alone, they convicted him of her murder. So genetics is already starting to play by the, by the time of Code 46 release. It's already having this huge effect on our society. Here they are hiding from the sun. They go from a large space to a small space. So that shot outside is probably one of the shots where Tim Robbins had said in interviews about how they were doing some really guerrilla filmmaking. And it was making him quite nervous. Very small crews just driving around in a van, jumping out, shooting a bunch of stuff, jumping back into the van, and then hauling ass. And shooting in China without film permits, I'm sure, is you don't want to get caught doing that. You don't want to be caught breaking the law at all in China. So here we go from that that big open wide space to very, I wouldn't say claustrophobic, but we are definitely in a smaller space here. The camera starts to get closer with these medium shots. And you start to see lots of windows, lots of divisions. And there is some other Blade Runner stuff type things going on here. Like if you watch Blade Runner, they've got these small introductions of different types of technology. Like the 3D viewer and printer, the telephone, the video phone. There are also some genetics in there. This is also in her apartment with a lot of screens that she's using. And here we have some editing, which is very reminiscent of Steven Soderbergh. And specifically, it's the love scene in Out of Sight, where Soderbergh cuts back and forth between George Clooney and Jennifer Lopez in a bar having a conversation and then fast forward to them disrobing to have sex and the editor is playing with that very same notion so here's the finger again she is transferring a memory of Damien onto this little memory book and we only see Damien we don't see William Geld but he might as well be in there She shows him the photo book and she shows him the other people that she's stolen these papels for. 
And this is kind of shocking because this is the evidence. He could convict her using this evidence. This is dangerous stuff. So there's a level of trust here that's going on that doesn't make entirely a whole lot of sense. The screenwriter is Frank Cottrell Bryce. And he mixes Spanish and some French into their standard usage. And he carefully constructs Code 46 to kind of be like a film noir, kind of have Tim Robbins as our Humphrey Bogart walking around investigating stuff, the Sam Spade, if you will, trying to figure stuff out. But in this case, this kind of goes against the film noir. He's already found his criminal, and we're only not even half an hour into the movie. And then you have these very weird things going on, like he takes her to bed for, so she can sleep, but then he says, well, I'm going to make you some coffee. Well, then why did you, if she doesn't want to go to sleep, why did you take her to bed? It's very strange. And then, of course, in her dream, she reaches the last station. So her fate has arrived. And what is her fate? We all know what her fate is. She's going to sleep with him. She's running towards her fate in that shot. And when Geld returns with her coffee, well, first he finds the little papel when he's looking for tea or something. And he's basically... And that's from the Sphinx Corporation. You can tell because it has a picture of, that's not a Sphinx in that picture. It's actually a picture of a statue of Ramses II. And here she's going to glimpse her future. And when she glimpses it, it's going to be a very soft image of him on the subway. And it cuts back and forth between the dream and reality, dream and reality. And in her eye, you can see him in her eye. And then it leaves. Bryce, by the way, wrote the claim. He wrote 24-Hour Party People, Code 46, Tristam Shandy. So they had four... Different screenplays. Now she starts singing here, said I remember when we used to sit in a government yard in Trenchtown. So she brings up memory in this very strange situation where very soon she's going to not remember anything anymore. This is a Bob Marley song, No Woman, No Cry. Now, how she knows that song from the Emirates and moving to Shanghai, I'll never know. 
Robbins was on a tear by the time he got to Code 46. He did Arlington Road in 1999. He had a guest spot in The Spy Who Shagged Me, Mission to Mars in 2000, High Fidelity in 2000, a supporting role, The Truth About Charlie, Played the Heavy, Mystic River in 2003, directed by Clint Eastwood, Code 46 in 2003. Samantha Morton was also in tons of films right before this, did a lot of TV, but in 2002 she was in Minority Report, which is another investigative, you could say, future noir directed by Steven Spielberg, who obviously saw her talent. And that is about telling the future. Philip K. Dick was the author, like I said, same as Blade Runner, same as Total Recall. The Man in a High Castle. After Minority Report, she did Code 46 in 2003, The Libertine in 2004. She was in Elizabeth the Golden Age in 2007, Cosmopolis in 2012. So she goes back and forth between Indian Hollywood, similar to Robbins. The Code 46 is is not just a restriction. You can look at it like a a positive breeding strategy. Not a racist breeding strategy, but it's more like a form of quality control. And there's lots of turning around if you remember, Robbins turns around in the lobby when they go through the screening. And he actually, that's when they first meet. And he tells her that later on. And throughout the film, he turns around. He turns around here. And it's like he's kind of unsure of what he's doing. And in the lobby, when he turns around and he sees her, he can't get through because he doesn't have the, the finger code. But it's like he almost senses her. And he's definitely eyeing her. She doesn't want him to go, obviously. Roger Ebert has a brilliant review of Code 46 on his website, rogerebert.com. He said, quote, the problem with Code 46 is that the movie filled with ideas and imagination is murky in its rules and intentions. I cannot say I understand the hows and whys of this future world, nor do I much care since it is mostly a clever backdrop to a love affair that would easily teleport to many other genres. Investigator falls in love with mystery woman, helps her commit crime, Risks being left out, hanging to dry. That's double indemnity. And he's correct. Roger's mostly correct. Well, there is 
a different code 46 and it's the, the code 46 that's actually in the penal code in Germany. And it has a partially contradictory rule. It says the offender's blameworthiness shall be the basis of sentencing. The court shall take into account the effects that the punishment is expected to have on the offender's future life. So the fact that you're guilty should parlay into your punishment. It's like you should get extra time because you're guilty. It's a very strange rule. And we see that sort of play out at the ending of Code 46. She's guilty, and so she gets extra punishment because she's guilty. It's like breaking the law is one thing, but the sentencing is quite another. So he gives this papel to the Sherbert salesman, and he has no idea what's going to happen to her. But we're going to find out label later, like I said, that Damien is, is dead. And this is kind of like um, the Orson Welles film, Touch of Evil, where you've got Hank Quinlan, this this real bastard of a cop who's nobody likes for the entire movie Touch of Evil that goes on in. Then at the end of the film, you find out that Hank Quinlan was right, that the the man that he pegged for the bombing, well, he really did it. And here he's walking into a Seattle apartment, and Maria's there, not his wife. And for some reason, Winterbottom is pushing the camera in and pulling the camera out, pushing the camera in and pulling the camera out. It's very strange what's going on. Back to Shanghai. No, I'm sorry. We're back in Seattle. Again, working at night, and he's trying to contact her, and she's off the grid. And we don't know how much time passes, but due to the events that we find out later, which is she's pregnant, we can assume six or seven weeks. And here in this intimate situation with his wife, you can see the contradiction that's happening in his persona. And we're not too sure if these images of her are in his mind or not. Is he dreaming this or is this really happening? And because there's sort of this bright light, we assume that it's going to be a dream. Now he's back at work. All the world is right. He's contacted he's looking for images of her. Jabel Ali. Jabel Ali is a town that's in between Dubai and Abu Dhabi. 
and you basically just see the gumshoe at work. And here's where he finds out about the the fatality. There is a parallel to Oedipus here in more ways than one. We have the Sphinx, of course. Oedipus solved the Sphinx riddle. And the Sphinx killed itself. And it, then it releases the city of Thebes from the plague. And as a result, it made Oedipus its king in gratitude. Well, there's a riddle that has to be solved here. We think that it's the riddle in the beginning, but like I said before, before the half, first half hour is out, William has already figured out who the criminal is. That's not the problem. There's another problem that's going on. What, what is the other riddle that has to be solved here? And the riddle is, who is Maria Gonzalez? Why do I have this extra empathy for her? Who is she to me? Why am I hung up on this girl? If it were any other movie, this would be explained away through the process of regular human emotion, which is conveyed by the eroticism of the moment. And that's what filmmakers, they soften the lens, they push in for the close shot. Occasionally you have nudity. And that's how they wrap you into believing the love story. Code 46 is different. It, it uses some of those techniques, but it it does something extremely bold when it reveals the plot. And in this strange situation, you've got this, his house has this screen with water on it. Of course, they're in Seattle. And in Maria's apartment, there is a screen and it had a sun on it. So you've got some opposites going on. So, again, this is supposed to be right outside of Shanghai. Shanghai does not look like that. There's no desert outside of Shanghai. It's thousands of miles away. And here the Sherbert salesman is gone. So he used the papel to get away. When Deng Xiaoping was leader of China, he opened up that hotel right there with the huge orb in the center. Now here, Guild goes back to the scene of the crime. They're trying to find out what happens. He's made a mistake. He's got to find Maria, turn her in, fix this, clear his, his name, so to speak, clean up his own mess, and then go back home. Lo siento is I'm sorry in Spanish. So he's constantly saying lo siento, lo siento. So he's instantly saying, Maria Gonzalez, where is she? What do you mean she's gone? She's disappeared? And Maria's boss 
we assume knows, oh, I was right about her because he's back and he's asking about her. So he had to be right about her. Now, I didn't want to bring this up because it seems so stupid to say, but I, I do know this guy. He's a friend of mine. He's a doctor. He works at a very large medical company. And he's taking a course on genetics. And what he told me was the reason he's learning more about genetics is because he's going to run his patient's genetic codes. And he's going to see what it is that they are more susceptible to and what they are more likely to develop. And then he is going to tailor the medical treatment of that patient using the code. And on the face of it, this is a very good thing. If you know that you are predisposed to emphysema, a doctor can advise you to have a certain diet and certain habits and probably put you on a pill regimen that will help lengthen your life. This is an absolute positive. And then, of course, there is a separate side of it, which is they could deny you medical care if they know that you're a smoker, say. This is Benedict Wong, 15 years before he was in Doctor Strange. And here, William is going to use the empathy virus to find out what is going on, what was the nature of Maria's body issue. There's a confidentiality issue, sir. I'm sorry, I can't, I can't divulge. And this is a baseline. So Geld is putting him through the baseline. You didn't get me, you didn't get me, you didn't get me. Tell me something about yourself, anything. And here, Wong breaks the baseline. And he says, my mother had this job before me. And then Geld snatches it right out of his empathic abilities. How long has Miss Gonzalez been pregnant? So this baseline and then the violation of the baseline, this is kind of like the Voight comp test that's in uh, Blade Runner. And it's actually more like the baseline test that's in Blade Runner 2049. The minute you violate the baseline, everybody really knows what's going on. So, Geld has a car. Geld takes the car outside because the abortion clinic is outside. It's Alfuera. So, this, this raises an enormous issue that... We didn't even talk about it in the projection booth, which was amazing because this was like the day after the Supreme Court decided against Roe v. Wade and destroyed it. And I think there were 43 abortion clinics within the next month that went out of business, completely shuttered. And even today, there are women all over the United States that are suffering 
because they can't receive the reproductive care that they need in order to give themselves a higher quality of life. But this abortion clinic is outside. It is not inside. It's Alfuera. So I'm guessing that this is something that the huge Sphinx Corporation doesn't want inside. They only want this outside. But if you look at the abortion clinic, it, it, it looks really nice. It looks like it's on the inside. So it's very, there's something very strange going on here. And this is, this is where Roger Ebert was saying, I don't particularly understand everything that's happening in this world. It's like, it's not very well thought through. And I would agree with that. His empathy virus isn't working here because he has a cold. They introduce it as a control mechanism to maintain the security of their clients. And for some reason, they have chosen to use a security cam to show this payoff. It's like the Sphinx is watching. And we are in a very particular situation in Code 46 where we don't actually have a villain in the movie. Not, there's no villain that's personified. There's, there is the Sphinx Corporation and there's this very brooding umbrella-like company or process or scheme that is set up like an oppressive totalitarian type of state that knows all and sees all and is coordinating most things. And all of that is just hinted at and mostly lost in translation. So we, we don't have a lot of these things that are explained to us as to why things are the way they are and where things are. All we are told about is this is code 46. Do not break it. And if you break it, there are consequences. 100% match, 50% match, 25% match. You're not allowed to have relations with that person who, who has those matches with your DNA. In vitro fertilization is by this point so rampant that this is a problem. There are clones of fetuses all over the world. And you could run into a clone of a relative. Or even of yourself. Which would be a 100% match. So that being the case... How did you get to this point? How did this world come about? How did it evolve to the point where we needed IVF? Was there something wrong? Was there a plague? Was there a, a virus that wiped out a lot of people? And in, in order to populate faster, you, you went through IVF? The, none of this is explained. None, none of this in the world is really even hinted to. It's just, it's just there in the background.
And again, another shot here that looks like a surveillance footage camera. Like the Sphinx is watching all of this. Now there's something going on with the finger. Like she had, she had a finger that was severed uh, when she was a child and she had it reattached. And when she entered the abortion clinic, because it was a code 46 violation, they wiped her memory. So she has no memory that she violated code 46, that she had a pregnancy that was terminated. All of her memories were removed. So Geld is kind of screwed here in two ways. First, he's got a witness that has no memory, so he can't She's kind of, as a criminal, she's, she's kind of worthless to him. And then two, if she doesn't remember him, then personally, that's, that's an emotional hit for him. What Gel doesn't do is the obvious, which is, whoa, she doesn't remember me or that we've had sex or that we, we broke the law with a code 46 violation. Perfect. What I'm going to do is take her back to the authorities and turn her in. And then I'm going to fly home scot-free, case closed, and the movie will be over by the hour mark. But that's not what happens. Of course that's not what happens. Why would that happen? We wouldn't have another half hour of the movie. And this is one of those reasons why Vertigo is almost a two-hour film. There are certain questions that are just not asked. I mean, does Kim Novak really believe that Jimmy Stewart doesn't know that she is who she is? So there is all this sort of subterfuge going on. Things are at a certain state of verisimilitude. Things are not always what they seem, right? In in reality, maybe the filmmaker didn't think everything all the way through. The filmmaker is banking that you're not going to ask a certain amount of questions. And this is... This is where the empathic ability comes again, like he still has it. But she's unaware that he has it. But when she says, what am I thinking of right now? What is Geld's reaction? She's thinking of someone that she doesn't know. Then later on, in the car on the way to the airport, when his son asks him, what am I thinking? Geld doesn't know. And it's because he's lost his empathic ability. So all of this is heading towards a typical film noir ending where you know, the femme fatale suffers. The male gets away scot-free if the male is guilty of any wrongdoing. The woman is punished 
So the future looks just as misogynist, as patriarchal, and as classist as most film noir is. This could be the lady from Shanghai or you name it, any other film. But it doesn't mean that the ending is any more messed up. Now here he's going to show her Damien in the photo book, the person she was thinking of, but doesn't remember. And strangely enough, he uses his thumb, not hers, in order to activate the photo book. So it's very strange. So it doesn't have to be her finger. And there's something going on with the finger and there's something going on with castration here that I don't completely and total understand. Totally understand. Her finger is cut off. It's sort of like a castration. She tries to use it in a few other scenes when, when they try to get into the building where she works. They can't get in because... Her finger is not letting her in. Or at the airport, she tries to use it, and it's not working there either. And to geld is to castrate. And that's his last name. So it's just very, very strange things going on there. And Maria's self-determination is taken away when she's given this virus during her abortion that controls her physical reaction to someone who shares 100%, 50%, or 25% match with her DNA, meaning him. He's in there somewhere, although we don't know exactly where just yet. So there's like a will and grace argument going on here. What is what is free will? What is not? What is meant to be? What is not? Is her dream real in that it's a countdown to something? Or is it not? So she starts freaking out here. She's looking for Cosa. Cosa in Spanish is stuff. It's just stuff. I'm looking for my stuff. She can't find her stuff. So what are we supposed to think considering that her self-determination is being taken away in an age when women are le losing more and more of their rights? Now, this sequence, and there are a number of other sequences, particularly any sequence that uses the voiceover, there's something going on with some distantiation, which is very strange to me. And I haven't really been able to figure it out. And Code 46 is full of a lot of things that I haven't figured out. And that's okay. 
But the voiceover is part of this distantiation. So just a real quick run through if you're not familiar with distantiation. This is your first time on the Super 70 podcast, and that's perfectly fine. No judgment here. I didn't know what the fuck distantiation was until I was about 35 years old. But Winterbottom is very specifically doing things that are not normal in the film to pull you out of the experience for just a little bit so that you can try to judge the situation dispassionately. Her voiceover is part of that. Not a big fan of her voiceover. A lot of people aren't. There are some unfocused shots. There are jump cuts that go nowhere. There's some chronology that's discontinuous. There's some transitions that are weird that go left to right, right to left. There's some unexplained images that are going on, like Geld and her eye. The subway train. And then the huge consensual rape scene, which is just bonkers. A lot of that is just meant to just throw you off. And so here they find that this is a code 46 violation, him being with her, because he is a 50% match. She is a she is a 100% match for his mother. So... The in vitro was so popular that somehow a clone of his mother's fetus was used so often that he ran into that clone. Now, he was in vitro too. So he didn't know his parents either. His nurture parents, as they say. So the fact that they ran into each other, it sounds like a one in a million shot, but if it's a one in a million shot, why is there a couple in the booth next door? Because they're screening for a code 46 before they move on with their relationship. And here the camera time slows down. And he starts having a real problem processing what's going on. And this is when the movie sort of kicks into an overdrive. Okay. Fight or flight. He's going to run. Why is he running? Because he is, in fact, in love with his mother. And this is the full-on Oedipus complex at play here. And that's what this is. It's basically a a remake of Oedipus. By the way, 24-hour cover is not enough to get to Shanghai and back from Seattle. I flew from Shanghai to L.A. once, and that was 10 hours.
So the starting point of the film is the Oedipus myth about the inescapability of fate. Everyone tells Oedipus, I'm sorry, the soothsayer tells Oedipus, you're going to murder your father and marry your mother. And Oedipus says, that's crazy. I'm not, I'm not doing that. Like who would believe that? And that's exactly what the play unfolds to the audience. It's, is these steps. He unwittingly murders his father and then marries his mother when Thebes celebrates him as the person who broke the plague because he answered the riddle to the Sphinx. And the same thing happens to Geld. He knows something's up with her. He doesn't understand what it is. She's telling him, look, this, this could be very bad for you. And he does it anyway. And you see what happens. And it's kind of fitting, too, because Oedipus is sort of the first detective thriller, if you want to look at it that way. I mean, Oedipus blinds himself, and in a sense, so does Geld. If you think about the end of it, when they, they take away his memory... And it's erased. He can't see his crimes. And the only string left is his wife. And Jocasta hangs herself. And we don't get resolution in the same way for Maria by the end of this film. Perhaps a suicide would have been too harsh. And this is pretty good when he says, can I come in? She's like, can I stop you? Well, of course, he has the password. No, she can't stop him. The halo in the background is another element that's meant to confuse us. What is the halo doing? Is it saintly? Is it vaginal? What's going on? But you know, I tell you where, where Code 46 succeeds, and it, it succeeds where it doesn't get bogged down in this really technical talk as as much of a sci-fi as it is, and it is a sci-fi even though it, there's little to zero CGI, this is about two people and their intimate relationship with each other. And, you know, that's why Blade Runner is a success, and that's why Star Wars is a success, and that's why Interstellar is a success. Sci-fis that are too techy get lost. There's not a whole lot of techie talk in Code 46, although it does have some elements that make you go, oh, well, that was pretty neat. Oh, well, that was pretty cool. So here they're going in to get the papel. But since she's a suspect, she doesn't have access to her old job anymore.
Now, the strange thing about this, since we're at an hour and plus of screen time, and we don't have too much to go, but to the very end, if you watch this movie with subtitles, you will see that at no point in this script does William ever tell Maria that she is a match for his mother. This is very strange. This is very weird. Why does he not tell her? Is it because he's afraid she'll leave? And isn't that what he needs or wants? And here in his discussion with his boss is another thing that doesn't make sense to me. He's having a conversation with the boss. She knows that his cover is run out. He lies to her. Why does he even bother? Then he says, well, I got another cover. Well, she knows that's a lie, too. That doesn't make any sense. Why doesn't he just tell his boss what's going on beforehand? Hey, I didn't wrap this up in time. I ran out of cover. I need to get out. Can you arrange it for me? But if you did that, of course, you wouldn't have the rest of the movie. It's just very strange to think about this film in terms of she is a clone, he is a clone. Since he was in vitro. So he starts to lose his his grounding. And one thing I will say about Code 46 that doesn't happen that's kind of it's strange, it's a little off, but at the same time, I'm glad they didn't do it. Like, this is the perfect movie to start having, like, doubles and twins and doppelgangers. Here she's shoving the papel up her butt to sneak it out. So it'd be very easy to start doing this doubling, to start using mirrors and all of this. And instead, you've got sort of distantiated surveillance footage, pulled back shots instead of all of the doubling. So the doubling, I think Winterbottom was, that was an easy way out for him and he wasn't going to do it. There's no way that the doubling didn't, didn't come into their mind. It would have been very easy to create this doppelganger motif and they specifically chose not to do it and here's the strange dream that flashes to the station in which she meets her fate this is how I know that this is Hong Kong Lantau Airport I'd know that airport anywhere. Now watch Michael Winterbottom hit me up on Twitter and tell me I'm wrong. No, that's Abu Dhabi, idiot. You know, governments have always restricted travel. And whether you were the subject of a king or since 1914, when everyone pretty much got on the passport system, 
you were limited that way. But this is the closest I've seen a film come to the pandemic before the pandemic. You know, most places today will let you leave, but getting into some other places is your problem until the pandemic. Then, then people were really like checking your status before you left. Airlines were asking for visas at the airport as common practice during the pandemic. And of course, everyone's got a story about trying to get someplace and they couldn't get there because of X. Usually it's a customs official using his power over someone else. Here's the finger going off again. It's my new finger, but it's not a new finger. It's absolutely not a new finger. must be flying first class. So the flight is a very strange situation because they run to Alfuera and they get out. And she's going to supposedly teach him how to live on the outside. This is a very drastic decision for him. And Winterbottom moves to the Emirates. And he has been blending the Emirates with China to give you a diversity of topography and landscape and a diversity of people. And he keeps that up largely. If you look on this boat, the boat looks a little bit like the subway. It's the same sort of racial, ethnic makeup. There is a more of a third world quality about Jabel Ali. That's in sharp contrast to Shanghai and its cars and its glass and its freeways and its huge lobbies and its skyscrapers. But still, even here, you see that people are still working at night. They're living at night. They're sleeping during the day. You see it later when they flee through the desert. There's nobody else on the highway but them. Here he lies, says we have cover. What is this guy? You're in Alfuera. Why does it matter if you have cover or not? So it's it's Geld's not fully appreciating where he is and how he can behave. He feels like he has to lie in a in a place where it's not necessary anymore. So here we come to this very bizarre second sex scene. Which I have to say is very distantiated. And it's very complicated on a lot of different levels. There's a narrative level. What sense does it make in the film? 
is this incest? Uh, is this rape? Is this consensual rape? Is there actual consent going on? Does that lead to the ending? When he tells her, you're going to naturally resist me, and she's the one who goes and gets the belt and tells him it's okay if she's strapped down. Like, there's something very fucked up about that. There's an internal level that's going on, and this is not Morton that you see in this very graphic shot of some stand-ins genitalia. This is a body double. And you can tell because they cut away from Morton and then they cut two. And I don't even actually believe that that's Tim Robbins in that shot. And this is strange because of the rest of Winterbottom's films are so very honestly graphic. And this is kind of disingenuous in a way. And then there's this other external level with going on like a practical level of shooting the scene in of itself now, I've read some of the reviews of code 46 and the ones that mention the explicitness don't treat the film very well and I don't get it it's almost like a vagina guaranteed a bad review and some people that I've talked to and some of the reviews on Letterboxd that I read say that the shot itself was all very unnecessary. But I'm going to side with Winterbottom on that. I read in one of these books on Winterbottom, he said, quote, why can't you make a film showing two people make love? If you're going to make a love story, why must you avoid the sexual side? And he specifically brings up fiction, specifically contemporary fiction. And he has a point. No one pulls any punches in fiction. They pretty much write what they want. I mean, like next level fan lit porn type stuff, class A stuff that you can buy on Amazon. And nobody says anything about it. You can buy pornographic fiction on Amazon. But you can't buy pornography DVDs on Amazon. You can't even find pornographic actresses or DVDs on IMDb, which is also owned by Amazon. Try looking up Georgiana Spelvin or Constance Money. The only one you see is, you know, Tracy Lords, which is complicated in of itself. And why? You, sh you should be able to equate the two, but audiences and rating systems, they don't allow literature and porn simultaneously. They only rate one or the other. Winterbottom made a rather bad film called Nine Songs I talked about before, and that showed actual penetration, actual cunnilingus. That had an ejaculation in it, and the British Board of Censors cleared it because they looked at the intent. That was their rule. What is the intent of the filmmaker? Was it Winterbottom's intent to arouse the, user, the viewer using pornography? 
but believe it or not, arousal was not the point of that film. It was to tell a love story between two people. Now, it's not a good story, but that's like just saying that like there's no good porn, right? There are there's good stories and there's bad stories. There's good movies and there's bad movies. There's good porn and there's bad porn. And if you're going to equate the two, then there's there's no difference between Code 46 or Nine Songs or say like The Cooler in which Maria Bello showed her vagina or In the Realm of the Senses or Showgirls or any other film in which you actually see genitalia, The Doors. The only difference is who says it's obscene and who says that it's not. In America, the law says that film must, quote, lack serious literary, artistic, political, or scientific value, unquote. Or it must be, here's the famous phrase, patently offensive. And when you say, how do you know what's offensive? How do you know what's obscene? The general guideline is, I know what it is when I see it. That's what the judges say. So in this very strange rating system, Nine Songs gets an NC-17, Code 46 barely gets an R with a warning of brief graphic nudity. Now here her virus kicks in. You can sort of see like she's almost in a trance-like state as she gets up. And she reports the Code 46 violation. He's kind of tipped off to it, but he's too sleepy to go and stop her and catch her. And here's kind of a very strange situation as we barrel towards the end. Because who really violated Code 46? It wasn't her, it was him. And not to get, like, overtly feminist here, but who broke the law, really? I mean, he broke it twice, and she paid for it twice. That's a pretty fucked up narrative. And he just decides now we got to get out of here. We got to flee because this nameless bureaucracy is going to come after us and we're not going to have a choice. We're going to have to flee. You can sort of see her just sort of come out of this virus, almost like she's coming out of the trance. And it's like the virus wears off. And then she almost becomes obsessive for his affection. Here he tries to uh, cough up the, the little bribes that were working somewhere and no longer work. He calls the car a pad Mimi. 
And when you see the car, you're going to laugh because it's not a pad mini. It's a Troby. Famous East German car. Looks kind of like a Lada. They don't make those anymore. And here, Winterbottom starts opening up the shots. Way, way, way out. The car gets farther and farther away. And you start to see more of Alfuera, way to wasteland it really is. And you start to wonder why exactly did they have to come out here? Where are they going to hide exactly? And why is Alfuera this run-to place? Like these, these nameless bureaucrats, these government authority people, I'd like to think of them as, you know, the bureaucrats in Brazil that are constantly running after a 27-stroke B form. Why do they even care? If they're in Afuera and they're on the run, why do they care where they're going? Why are they tracking him down? That doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And the, the only indication that you get... of these nameless bureaucrats from the Sphinx that are in charge of everything is this helicopter shot of this car that parks behind them, this Toyota. And you kind of get the hint of people in some sort of medical garb. It's like they're wearing like these green suits Almost like hazmat. Type of garb. And is that how they're being treated? Like they think. This is all Hong Kong. Do they think that. This is infectious. Is there something with the empathy virus that's infected? You know, it's very, it's very strange how that entire thing pans out. And then this very strange situation where the doctor tells the wife, well, he knows that he crashed the car, but as far as he knows, he never went to Jebel Ali, so he doesn't remember anything. So that implies that they told her that he was in Jebel Ali. And if they told her that, there's going to be a question, well, why did he go there? They would have had to explain to her, well, he was with a woman. Ergo, I mean, you really have to think how much did they tell her? It's like they, it's like they told her a lot. And if he had to face a tribunal, maybe she knew, knows about the tribunal. It's just very, it's a very weird situation. Why is she even here? She knew that her husband slept with a clone of his mother. I think there would be a lot of uh, therapy sessions involved, maybe a few screaming matches. But none of that has gone through. None of that whole 
that whole hole is just glossed over. And then, of course, the son's like, what am I thinking of now? And he's like, I don't know. So the empathy virus has run out. And then of the very funnily prescient, row, row, row your boat, life is but a dream. And you see the wife thinking there as if the wife is contemplating his crime, his violation. But we'll never know. So here, of course, Maria is exiled. She's the one who pays for the Code 46 violation. Because that's what happens with any type of law around reproductive rights or women's bodies. The woman will always pay for being the creator of life. She will always be controlled by men who will always tell the woman that they know better than her strictly because they are not men. It's this very misogynist, very sexist worldview, this, this huge structure that's meant to control everything about what a woman does, how she behaves, how she acts, where she goes, who she interacts with, how she interacts with, them or anyone and the ending with Geld and his wife making out it really reminds me of like that last shot in Fatal Attraction when after the the redone murder Ann Archer and Michael Douglas walk out of the bedroom and the camera centers on a picture of the family and that's sort of the last thing you see before the credits so the patriarchal order is reaffirmed and the correct relationships are reaffirmed and the women who don't fit the mold they're banished forever into darkness because the history of the world quite frankly is the true history of the oppression of women Thanks for hanging out with me while we rambled through Code 46 by Michael Winterbottom. I'm Dylan Davis, and you can catch me on Twitter at that Dylan Davis. You can find me, my blogs, my books, my film reviews on www.thatdylandavis.com. I'm also on Letterboxd. I'm Dylan Davis, and we'll meet next time dot dot dot
the stuff that's in the film is actually happening now. We're just choosing not to focus on it and see it. It does make a social comment, and it's one that is very relevant today, and if people don't start looking at that, it's just going to get worse and worse and worse.